All right, let's open our Bibles to the book of Luke in chapter number 20. How about that? Uh, and then we'll read and we'll pray and I'll try to tell you some crazy stories, which is really easy to do. I, could, I, I told my wife I should take all the stories from Zambia and write them down and do a stand-up comedy act. <laughs> and um, you could actually do that. All right, Luke chapter 20, verse 1, And it came to pass on one of those days, as he had taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes came upon him with the elders. They pretty much got everybody. And they spake unto him, saying, Tell us by what authority dost thou these things? Or who is he that gave thee this authority? And he answered and said unto them, I will also ask you one thing, and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say, Why then believed ye not ye him not? But, and if we say of men, all the people will stone us, for they be persuaded that John was a prophet. And they answered that they could not tell whence it was. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being able to come to Southwest. Thank you for being able to allow me to preach here. And I pray that you'd help me through this passage, help me through this scripture, and help uh, me to convey what you've placed upon my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, you may be seated. Sure to appreciate being able to come here for the Mid-Summers uh, Missions Conference. I sure do appreciate being able to just come back and see familiar faces. You, you, know, what's, you know what's a blessing? I'm going to tell you what's a blessing. Seeing some of the same people standing over there in the youth department, yeah. still there, right. still working, still serving. Oh, yeah. We need more of that. Amen. Amen. Get your life stable and get out and tell somebody about Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So uh, again, like I said this morning, my two favorite topics are authority and money, and we can weave both into this passage, so this is like a fantastic deal. You know, it's a funny thing, though, that people don't like the topic of authority. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, you're ever driving down the road and you see a police officer behind you, maybe you're going a little fast, a little bit in a hurry, and he's got the little lights going on, he pulls you on the side of the road, you say, man, this is such a blessing, you know. <laughs> Romans 13 is, is, just, is just bringing me back into compliance with the law and the government. I should really tell him thank you. I, I really needed this. Do you notice that that is not the normal reaction? Amen? That's not my reaction. Uh, and it's certainly not probably your reaction. Do you know why? Because we really resist authority. And that's just really, and as Americans, we really resist. Do you know we have a culture in America of resisting authority? The Zambians, they tell me, they say, you know, we, we, we fought for our independence, too. And I'm like, no, you didn't. The British just kind of like said, OK, you can be free. We're done. Have your country. And I tell them, I said, when we got our independence, we got rifles and killed them. <laughs> and they're like shocked. I'm like, and they're like, what's with all the guns? I said, yeah, my father-in-law, he's probably got 60 guns. And they're like shocked. And they're like, why does he have so many? In case we have to do it again. And they're like, what in the world? You people are crazy. But, you know, we've got kind of a little bit of a rebellious streak in us, and we don't really like authority. We don't want the government telling us what to do. We don't like anybody telling us what to do. We don't like our spouse telling us what to do. We don't like our preacher telling us what to do. We don't like some visiting missionary telling us what we should do. We just want to do what we want to do, and we want to go where we want to go, and we want to live how we want to live. And for some of us, church is just one of those things we like to do. So we do it. But you know that good and evil was on the same tree? Did you know you can be carnal and be sitting in church right here today? Because, you know, you don't, you'd never go to the bar because that's not your thing. So you go to church and that is your thing. And the problem is it's all your thing. It wasn't the tree of the knowledge of evil. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this all comes back down to authority. Now, the interactions with police are quite different in Zambia. I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, when I first went there, they got me for some offense and it was just a bad situation. And they take you down to central police and um, then you have to pay this fine. And they're saying, you got to pay these two fines. You did this offense and you did this offense. And I'm like, I didn't do this offense. I did do this offense. I'll pay this one. I'm not going to pay this one. And they start leaning on me. They're like, hey, you know, you were videotaping us and we could put you in prison for that. And I mean, they freaked me out. I later found out this was all not true which is an abuse of authority, right? And so um, finally I looked at the guy and they, 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 I said, I'm not going to pay it. No, oh, you'll have to go to court. And I said, I don't mind. I'll go to court. I want to see what a Zambian court's like. That'll be interesting. For, oh, it'll take all day. I don't care. Look, I'm a preacher. 
I'm not going to say that I did something I didn't do. That's lying. I'll pay this. So then finally they took me in the back. They took me to this guy, hands me off to another guy. We go back behind a couple of cars and they're like, look, just give us 200 kwacha. You know, the, the whole, the, like one offense was like 500 and another offense was like 400. And I think 900 kwacha is like $50. So 200 kwacha then would be like 20 bucks. And I'm like, fine, I'll pay 200 kwacha. Give me a receipt. And he laughs. He says, oh, you can't get a receipt for 200 kwacha. And I realized what was going on. It's like, clicks in my mind. It's like, these guys are shaking me down for a bribe. You know, some of us are not as smart as you guys, and I'm a little thick upstairs. Like, those, those guys, what are they doing? I said, so I just, I said, I said, I'll be back, and I just walk off. And they're like, what are you doing? I said, don't worry about it. <laughs> so I go over, and I find a guy named Barry Ngoma. He's the head of Lusaka Traffic, and I said, this is what's going on. And I'm not very happy about it. He got upset, and he said, well, we'll take care of it. He said, look, here's my card. If you ever have a problem, you call me. So we go out, and he says, which two officers? I said, it was him and him. He says, you two, come here. And they get to be about from here to the piano. He says, I'm sorry you were inconvenienced. You can go. And I walked away, and I realized, okay, if I do something wrong, I've got to pay. But if I don't do something wrong, or they ask for a bribe, I can hammer them. And so that's been kind of my policy ever since I've been in Zambia. So I had one guy get in the car, and he's like, you were on your phone? I'm like, you're right. I was. I'm guilty. I'm guilty, 100%. And he says, well, what do you want to do about it? I said, well, I can either pay the fine or I can ask you for mercy. And I, I would like to ask you for mercy. And he said, okay, what do I get? I said, oh, man, I wish you wouldn't have done that. And so I just drive off with him in my car. <laughs> He's like, what are you doing? I said, we're going to central police. You just asked for a bribe. You can give me mercy. You can make me pay. But you can't take a bribe and put it in your pocket. Yeah. He starts laughing. And I said, what do you think, because I'm a Mazungu, I don't know anybody? And I tell him Barry Ngoma's name. I said, I'm taking you down to his office. And he's like, oh, my word. You could just see his whole countenance changed. And I got like three miles down the road, and I'm thinking, man, I got all kinds of stuff to do today. I don't want to do this. So I said, look, I'm going to do to you what you should have done to me. He's like, what's that? And I said, I'm going to give you mercy. Oh, thank you, boss. Thank you. And he jumps out of the car, and I drive off, and he's like three miles away from his unit. I don't ever know what happened to him, but, and that's the time I arrested a police officer. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of other stories. I arrested a drunk driver. We arrested the guy stealing gas. Jacob was there. How many of you know Jacob Ray? He was here for a while. He was there and he runs up to me and I was, there was three guys stealing gas out of a truck. He says, which one do you want me to get, dad? And I said, that one. He takes off. They tackle him. We tie him up, throw him in the back of the truck, take him to the police post. <laughs> Somebody's got to enforce the law out there. Amen. <laughs> so, but this idea of authority and, 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 you know, in Zambia, they grant us the authority to make arrests. You can make a citizen's arrest. They encourage you to do it. The police don't have any fuel for their vehicles. They can't travel out there and find anybody. So they're just like, hey, just, just if there's a problem, just go ahead and take care of it and bring us the guy. We'll sort it out when you get here. And so it's exciting. It's, a, it's an adventure. I'm just telling you, it's, it's very fun out there. So you get to be the authority, but you're also subject to authority. And in this passage, we see Jesus dealing with this, the, the, what was it, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. It's like they got everybody together and they go over to Jesus and there's, there's this conflict of authority, which is kind of what I just described in Zambia. I mean, who has the authority? Does Brother Ray have the authority? Do the police have the authority? The answer is, yeah, really. That seems to be how it rolls. And so you've got the same thing. You've got the chief priests, scribes, and elders. You've got Jesus. And here's the question. Who in the world has authority? By what authority are you doing these things, Jesus? You're coming in and you're preaching these things and you're telling these things. You're, you're asserting your authority and you didn't get it from us. So who is it that gave you the authority? So what he's, that's what they're asking Jesus. Why? Because they are quite certain that they have the authority and they are quite certain that he does not. Amen? You following this? And so uh, he asks him, he says, the baptism of John. Where's that come from? And they reasoned with themselves. Now, this is a big problem. I want you to remember that phrase because we're going to come back to that a little bit as we go into this parable below there. And that is one of the biggest problems that people have. They reason among themselves. Um, I'll just tell you a couple of stories because you can illustrate points with stories quite well. Well, you know, Brother Ray, you just don't understand. You know, people tell me that all the time. I come all over America. I'm all over Africa. They all tell me, you don't understand. I'm not called to be a soul winner. You just don't understand. Really? I might understand more than you know. 
Because God's not calling people to be soul winners. He's commanding them to. He said, go ye, not go he. Do you understand that ye is the plural form of you? So when the Great Commission says, go ye, well, he was talking to his disciples. Au contraire. Jesus said that he would sing in the church. That's in Hebrews chapter, uh, well, it's in Hebrews. See me later on that one. It's kind of intimidating with having you all out there. I just want you to know that. It, Hebrews says he'll sing in the church. That's a, that's a quote from Psalm 22. When did, he, when did Jesus ever sing? He sang at the uh, Last Supper, didn't he? They went out and sang a hymn. Do you know that those people at the Last Supper, those disciples that were there were a church? Jesus was the pastor of that church. And when he gave the commission, he just didn't give it to them. Do you know there's, there's people out there today that believe the Great Commission was only given to those people in the first century? Do you know there's people that have dispensationalized away that, that whole concept of the Great Commission away from the, the church? Do you know they're, they're out there that are doing that today? The fact of the matter is the Great Commission was given to the church. You are a church. As a member of a church, you are compelled to be involved in carrying out the Great Commission. I know I got a pastor friend. I met him when I was back there. He's down in Florida. He says, look, if you want to be a member of the church, he said, just come and watch what we do a little bit. Uh, every month they take a all church visitation on a Sunday night and everybody goes. He says, if you want to be a member of a church, he said, look, you become a member of the Elks Club. You become a member of the Shriners. When you become a joined to a church, you're a disciple. And as a disciple, you need to be involved with what the church is involved with. And the only thing Jesus sent and gave us to do is to go reach the world. He didn't say build a building. He didn't say run a bus route. He didn't say run Sunday schools. He didn't say uh, do all this. He didn't say stream things over the internet. He didn't say anything. He said, go ye and preach the gospel. None of those things, by the way, are wrong. None of those things are bad. But if you think church is coming into an air conditioning building and sitting and receiving something from a pulpit, you're a consumer, not a disciple. And that needs to change because the whole world out there is dying and going to hell. And the problem is people reason among themselves and they reason themselves out of God's will into some construct in their mind that allows them to really do whatever they want to do without any regard whatsoever to the authority of Jesus Christ in their life. I talked to a guy who was in Afghanistan. He said his whole unit, uh, is, is, he, one of the units that went out hit a, um, hit a uh, IED. His buddy was in the Humvee that hit it. He said, when we went out to clean it up, he said, all we found from him is a piece of his flak jacket about that big. And the minute that happened, they had a FOB, forward operating base, and they would send patrols out. These patrols were there to deny the enemy opportunity of movement so that the enemy could not organize because there's constant patrols going into the city. Once that happened, the CO, commanding officer, CO of the FOB, stopped all of the patrols going out said, it's too dangerous. So they brought everybody into the FOB. He said, within two weeks, mortar rounds were landing in the FOB. Because now with the patrols absent, the enemy could organize and the enemy could then attack. And do you know what we've done? We have created churches where it's too dangerous to go out and we've put everybody in here and now the whole world out there is dying and going to hell. And the Every degenerate person and every crazy idea is taking over all around us because we're in here. We got our walls. We're safe, but we're not going out. And we've reasoned among ourselves that this is okay. It's what we've done all over the world. Not just here, not just there. I'm speaking, I'm speaking of American Christianity. Do you know that less than 2% than of Christians will ever lead another soul to Christ? 98% of people will never personally lead a soul to Christ. Did you know that that's a sin? Is it okay to say that? Is that a sin? Is that, is that too strong? That's a sin to him that knoweth to do good, to him that doeth it not, to him it is sin. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. People say, well, I'm a missionary here. Where's your prayer letter? I want to know how many people you've led to Christ. I want to be open. How many people have you talked to? What have you done over the last two months? What have you done over the last three months? Well, I haven't done anything. Well, you're a stationary. You're not a missionary. Amen? We've got to break free from that idea. And we've got to embrace the idea of radically going out 
in, I don't want to say confrontational soul winning, but interactive soul winning to where we're talking to people about their eternal state. Do you know what most often people say when I do that? Thank you. In America. Even in liberal loony land, where our sending church is, where they have got completely lost their minds. My wife and daughter were out in Pacific. My daughter, 17 years old, walked up to somebody. What does it take to be right with God? 100% sure you're going to go to heaven when you die. Went into a whole soul winning conversation with this uh, teenager. My wife spoke to people. Nobody was upset. Nobody's screaming at him. Nobody's pulling guns out or knives out. There's no danger. Do you know what it is? It's pride because we care more about what people think than we care about what God thinks. It's just pride. We're concerned about what people think, but we're not concerned about what God thinks. And that's a problem. Amen? Because we're reasoning among ourselves. Let's go on. Oh, I like verse 7. So their solution, when they're confronted with the truth of God's word, is to just lie. We can't tell where it comes from. They just flat out lie. That's what that's called. So then they go on. And Jesus said unto them, neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. And then he began to speak this parable uh, to the people, this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard and left it forth to husbandmen and went into a far country for a long time. Anybody want to hazard a guess who the, uh, who the, um, uh, man that planted the vineyard is? That was Christ. That was God. And really this is, well, we'll get into what it is in just, in just a little bit. And at the season he sent a servant to the husbandman that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard. But the husbandman beat him and sent him away empty. And again he sent another servant and they beat him also and entreated him shamefully and sent him away empty. And again he sent a third that they wounded him also and cast him out. Then said the Lord of the vineyard, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son that they may uh, reverence him when they see him. Okay, what is this talking about? This is talking about the history of the nation of Israel. Long, long time ago, God sets up the nation of Israel. He's that nobleman or that owner that goes into heaven for a long time. And then he wants to come back and take that possession that is his. And he likens it unto a vineyard. Now, I like agriculture. So when I was uh, in the United States, after I left, uh, left Oklahoma, I went up to Washington and we in eventually bought a piece of property. It was two acres. And I put in a vineyard. I put in 18 grapevines. And I also put in about 30 or 40 fruit trees, you know, peaches, uh, apricots. One time my kids come home. This was, this was a tragedy. I'm going to tell you a tragedy. Our first crop of apricots, about 150, 200 apricots. The kids come ask my wife, hey, can we eat some of those apricots? Now they're green, okay? They're green. And she's like, well... If you pick it, you have to eat it, but go ahead and do what you want. That is a bad answer. They ate every single green apricot off the tree. I mean, they were like locusts. I mean, it's like, what in the world? I finally said, you don't take anything out of the garden off the trees unless you got a signed permit. So I, got, I, had, I had like fruit permits. I printed them out. You can take this many strawberries. Well, I sent Joe out, Josiah out. He's like four years old. I said, go pick some strawberries for breakfast. He walks out there. About a half an hour, he comes back with an empty bowl. I'm like, son, what did you do? I picked strawberries. Do you have any? He says, oh, yeah. Here's one. I'm like, you picked one strawberry and half hour? He says, no, I just ate them all. And I'm like, no, you're supposed to pick them for breakfast so that other people can eat them. So we, we had to put some restrictions on that. So we put in this vineyard, okay? Now, a vineyard's a radical deal. It's really radical. You got to put these posts in the ground. So we put like four inch, six inch treated posts in the ground. I used a backhoe to dig them down 36 inches. I had a, I, I had a guy that ran a commercial vineyard tell me how to do this. He said, if you don't do it this way, you're going to regret it. So we put these posts in with backhoes, 36 inches down. We put two grapevines between each post. So it's a post, vine, vine, post, vine, vine. I put 18 of them in. Now, a grapevine will grow up with a branch, with a, with the branch, the Bible would say, uh, 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 the, uh, the vine, and then the branch goes out to the side. Uh, to use vineyard terms, there's a, there's a, uh, a trunk and two cordons. 
And so what you do is you got these posts and then you go over to the end of the post and you dig a big hole. You take a cinder block and you wrap this wire around the cinder block and bury it in this hole. And then when this wire comes up to this post, you put these little triangle pieces in there like little cones. You put that cone in there and you run that wire through that cone. You take a claw hammer and you pull that wire and it cinches that wire and it's a one-way type of a deal. So as you cinch that thing, it tightens that wire. And you do this so that periodically as that wire stretches, you can continually keep tension on that wire. So the first year these vines come up. They're just little sticks like this. You plant them in the ground. They put out roots. Now here's what's amazing. You know this? Each nodule on that grape cutting, each nodule will either put out a leaf or a root, depending upon whether it's under the soil or has access to the sun. Now how's it know? Because it's been encoded with DNA. It's been programmed to do that by its creator. Now, your tablet can't do that. So these things start growing. First year, they get up to the vine. Then I take and prune off all the side shoots. And I have one going this way, one going this way. You let them go about four feet. So four foot, four foot. And then there's another vine. goes four foot, four foot. Where they come together, you cut them. And, that's, and, and this, is the, this is what you do. And then about the second year, you get those cordons established. About the third year, they produce some fruit. So we go out, we get little handfuls, little clusters about the size of this, just little baby clusters, and start eating those things. You're thinking, man, these are good. These are really good. We had a black manuka grapevine, unbelievable. I mean, sweet, fantastic flavor. And all of a sudden now I'm watching these grapevines. I got three rows of six vines. And I'd go out and I'd clean the weeds out from underneath them. I'd go out and fertilize them, go out and water them. I mean, there was a one vine that, that got girdled. I had a string around it and I forgot to take that string off and I cut that string off, almost killed that cordon. And for years after that, I could always see that scar, that warp of, of where that string was. It deformed that vine. And I remembered the time that I put that string on there. The one on the end down here on this end, there was a leak in the faucet. There was a leak in the water and it got extra water, which really means I probably should have watered the rest more because it grew like a, twice as much as any of the other ones. And that was the one that my kids would go sit under. And they'd eat the grapes. That was the one where a pheasant came in and laid eggs. And there was some pheasants there. It was so good, a chicken went and did the same thing. I guess that's the place to go if you're a bird or a kid. I don't know. But I got to know these vines. And after that third year, the fourth year came. And we, we got a more and more of a crop. And, and, it, and, and boy, we, we, we're, we're eating, we got boxes of grapes, we're giving them away, we're eating them. We had yellow grapes, we had black grapes, we had red grapes, we had Concord grapes that we'd press and make juice out of and drink the juice and that's good, good stuff. And then the fifth year comes and the fifth year is kind of the full production year. It's kind of the, considered to be the first year that these grapevines will really produce. Now, why did you have to have such a heavy duty post and such a thick wire? Why did you have to do all that? Because a, a Concord grape, any grape that you're going to make juice out of, you prune it in such a way that more clusters will grow on that vine. And there's a whole technical thing, I won't trouble you with that, on where you prune and how you prune, but it all has to do with how many buds you leave on each cordon. And when it's mature and it's fertilized and watered properly, each grapevine will produce, what you're shooting for is about 90 pounds of grapes. So I mean, we had six Concord vines. So that's over 500 pounds of grapes. I mean, you got a, a canning machine. I mean, you're, you're almost in production. Now, could you imagine back in the Bible days where they've got these grapevines and these grapevines are covering acres and acres and acres. And this husbandman went out there and took those grapevines and tended to them every single day. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, they start to produce a little bit. Then they start to produce more. And do you know what happens? What happens is the same thing that happened with Israel. Those leaders of Israel took the vineyard of Israel, and they tended to it for so long and for so many generations that all of a sudden, just like an actual vineyard owner, they started thinking, this is my vineyard. Where's the owner? He's left. This is obviously mine. Those were my grapevines. Do you understand that? I knew when that grapevine was girdled. I knew that vine that produced these good grapes. That was my vines. Do you understand that? So now all of a sudden, here comes Jesus, and he comes back, 
And God begins to say, uh, God begins to say, you know what? I, I want a little bit of ownership of that nation of Israel. So he starts sending some prophets. And these prophets start telling him, hey, you know, listen, you need to, you need to change. Where you're going is not good. You're starting to become like wild grapes. You're dabbling in things you shouldn't be dabbling in. And they killed him. They beat him. They threw him in a pit. I think Jesus said, which of the prophets have your fathers not persecuted? Which one of the ones, which one of the prophets was treated properly in Israel? Well, none of them. <laughs> they didn't like any of them. Do you know why? Because nobody likes authority. Because, you know, really, we want to be our own authority. And so as we see this, then he sends his son and his son comes. And what do they do? They crucify him. But when the husband saw, husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves. That's always not going to be good. Okay. Saying, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. Do you know what that says? It says that they, they weren't confused about who he was. They were, con they were concerned about what he would take. Uh, yeah. Do you understand that? So this vineyard of Israel, just like a husbandman in an actual vineyard, has been tended by these people for so long that they began to think that it was theirs. They did not want, and this is the truth, they did not want to lose their income. They didn't want to lose their power. They didn't want to lose their prominence. They didn't want to lose their respect. They didn't want to lose the control that they had. All of these things were threatened by Jesus Christ. He came and he was going to mess their life up. So they couldn't see him as one that came to die for them. They saw him as a threat to everything that they had. Does that make sense? So what did they do? They cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. What therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? He shall come and destroy these husbandmen and shall give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, God forbid. You know what happened? I'll tell you what happened. So I leave Oklahoma. I go out. And I take a little church in Washington State, and it grows, goes good, and we buy a house. We build ourselves a little house up there. I get myself an orchard. I get myself a vineyard. Um, I planted these. I found out something, okay? I'm just going to help you with this. If you plant peaches, don't go plant in Alberta. These, these peach, the names that you're familiar with, you need to go to an extension office and get like a P837, some peach that doesn't even have a name. It's just got a number because those are the ones that are the best. I planted the traditional ones over on this side. Then I planted these varieties that were commercial varieties. I got my first peach off that peach tree. I ate that thing. I said, this is unbelievable. It was the only peach I ever got off those trees. Because that was the year God said, I want you to go to Zambia. And I looked at all that I had. And I didn't want to go. Do you know why? I did the same thing they did. I took the blessings that God had given to me in my life and I mistakenly appropriated them as mine. And I'm like, I can't leave my house. I can't leave my vineyard. I'll lose these things. I had a wood shop. It was traumatic. I'm just going to tell you it was traumatic. I had a wood shop and I'd bought all these tools and I absolutely love to do woodworking. I love it. It's relaxing. You get to build something. You get to see something that's done. In the ministry, you, very, you see, in, in the ministry as a preacher, you measure uh, progress in decades, not days. It's the truth. So, you, you know, you, just, you build something like this pulpit and you can say, well, at least I built this. I mean, this is tangible. It's something here. And that satisfies something at least in me, it satisfies a need that I have to accomplish something in a short-term or relatively short-term basis. Does that make sense? So I, anyway, I love these tools. Just love them. Comes time, I got to sell them. Can't take them. Wrong power. And I can't bring it to myself to even put prices on them. I just tell my wife, I said, look, I'm going out here to preach. Just sell everything. You ever go to those yard sales where like there's a three horsepower Porter cable router and, the, and, and it's like 25 bucks? Yeah. Had a shotgun my grandfather gave me. I don't want to sell it. Can't take it. What do I do with it? 
I have sentimental value to this. And I remember becoming so mad at me that I'd allowed myself to be entangled so much in the things of the world that it was traumatic to let it go. Do you understand that? Those vineyards, my vineyard, became my vineyard. It wasn't something that I stewarded for the kingdom of God. It was something that I took possession of and I had forgotten that God only lent it to me. Do you understand that? And as I see, just I'm here this evening and I'm seeing Brother Gaddis talk about going over and preaching that camp. You know, that man sowed into his life. He's emotional because of the impact that that man made on his life. Do you understand that time moves on? I walked up to people when I'm back here and I said, hey, you got old. <laughs> I, I didn't get old. They did. Time moves on. And you can build the biggest house. You can go buy a boat. You can get a car. You can enjoy vacations here, there, restaurants here. But do you know what? None of it's going to matter. None of it's going to matter. What's going to matter is who are you sowing into? Who are you leaving behind? Who are you training and teaching? Who are you discipling? Who are you sowing in the eternal things of God? Who are you taking time to put them? Do you know what we're doing? We're spending all of our time over here with things that will not have any eternal value. And we're thinking that these things are mine. And then these things that we're pursuing literally chain us up into bondage. And all of a sudden we start thinking, well, I couldn't answer the God's call to go to the mission field. I couldn't do that. I got this job. I got this mortgage. I got this house. I got this car. I got this property. I got this business. I got all my kids. I got all my family. I've got this. I've got that. I've got this. And you're just like the vineyard. You've taken possession of the blessings of God that he gave you to steward for God and use those things that God gave you as an excuse as to why you can't go do what he told you. You got to let it go. You got to come down to an altar and say, you know what? It's not mine. I want my kids to serve God and follow God as long as it's in Oklahoma and it's not on the mission field and it's not too far away or it's not dangerous. It doesn't work like that. Do you understand? God's not going to give you a free sample of his will so you can taste it and test it and see if it's something that's acceptable to you. Oh, thou one that has taken authority. You'll never know what God's will is for your life until you come down to an altar and say, Lord, here I am. Whatever you want, I'll do it. If that means stay here till I die, I'll do it happily and serve you. If that means go to the heart of Africa, I'll get on the plane and I'll go. I was sitting down with a guy and um, he was a pastor. Uh, when I was on deputation in over one of the Gulf states over there, they're kind of all the same to me, hot, humid, and uncomfortable. And um, I'm sure glad Zambia's not like that. We have fantastic weather, unlike here. This is rough, this humidity and the heat. We should come over to Africa where it's comfortable. <laughs> it's true. It's like a paradise. Only again like Hawaii without the ocean and lots of garbage. But other than that, it's fantastic. You clean up your little space, go in there, and it's nice. And, and I'm talking to this guy, and he's, he says, yeah, when I was in the military, I went to Cameroon, and I was stationed there for like three months. And I, I mean, I didn't even know we had any soldiers or military in Cameroon. That blew my mind. But anyway, he's in the Navy. He's there and he goes on shore and there was this missionary there. He says, man, those were the best three months of my life. Man, people were hungry for the word of God. They wanted to be disciple. Man, I loved it. And I'm like, have you ever thought that maybe God's calling you to Cameroon? He's like, oh yeah. Problem is I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to go on deputation. That's too hard. It's too long. It's too difficult. It might be too discouraging. I'm like, look, it's not that bad. Just, just, just go get it done. Once it's done, it's done. Just go do it. Look, I know it's not an ideal system. I know it's not perfect, but nothing is ideal and nothing is perfect. Just go get it. If that's what God's calling you to do, just go. Just go. And, and he's like, well, you know, I don't know. I said, okay, look, well, what are you doing now? I'm like, maybe he can get a job over in foreign field. I don't know. What are you doing now? I mean, obviously 12 people in a Baptist church in Texas, they're not going to be able to support you. He's like, well, I have a military retirement. 
I said, really? How much does the military pay you? He says, $5,200. No, $5,500 a month. Now, this is what I did because this is the way I am. Brother Mast, where is he at? You could appreciate this. I looked at the guy, Brother Mast, and I said, kind of like this, are you kidding me? What in the world? You've got $5,500 a month coming in? I'm killing myself out here to try to get that much so I can go to Africa. What's your problem? How about you get on a plane now and just go? What about that? And you know what he said? You ready for this? Well, that's my money. Well, that's my money. I'm not going to spend my money to serve God. No, sir, I'm not going to do that. I want somebody else to give me their money. Do you know that all money is somebody's money until it becomes your money? Did you know that? That every time any missionary goes, somebody's got to give their money so that that guy can go and use their money to fly over there? And if everybody sat around and said, that's my money, nobody'd go anywhere because they don't give free airline tickets to missionaries. Amen? This guy, and I'm like, and you're a pastor? I feel sorry for those 12 people. Have you considered resigning? I didn't say that. I should have. But it's ridiculous. But doesn't that, doesn't, isn't that the American mindset? I can't go. I can't give. I, you know what's funny? People, I come to the United States of America and people say, you just don't understand. People tell me that all the time. I'm just telling you, I don't know what it is. I don't know if I just look stupid, but I'm just telling you, I get that all the time. You don't understand. We can't give here. We don't have enough money. I'm like, okay, well, you're like the wealthiest country in the world. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that if you can't give, if it can be done. I go to Africa. They say, you don't understand. We don't have any money. We can't give. So I go to a poor country. They can't give. I go to a rich country. They can't give. Nobody can give because everybody's treating their money, their assets, their children, and their lives like their vineyard. That's my vineyard. That's my money. This is my life. Those are my kids. No, they're not. Not a thing of it belongs to you. And the longer you go thinking that it does. Do you know what? There's a lot of people I would venture to say that right now in this auditorium, there are quite a few people that will resist and fight coming down to an altar and saying, you know what, God? Take my life. Send me wherever. I'm yours to do with what you please. There's a lot of people that won't do that because they're terrified what God will do with them. Because really, like we talked about this morning, he's a hard man and you really can't trust him. The wrong view of God keeps people bound up, holding on to their vineyard rather than coming down to an altar and saying, Lord, whatever I am, wherever I am, I'll go anywhere. You know what? When I was challenged with this, do you know what I was convinced God would do? I was convinced God would send me to, to, to Africa. You think, well, yeah, well, that's why. No, he didn't call me to Africa then. It was like 10 years later. That was just the worst place I could think of that he'd send me. <laughs> I mean, when you do things like tell God he can send you anywhere you want, you got to kind of plan for the worst event, right? Isn't that true? Okay, God, we're, you know, do you know what we need to do? We need, a, we need a generation of Christians today that will rise up like men who enlisted in the military. How many of you men served in the military or women? Now, when you joined the military, did you give them a list of what you would do and what you wouldn't do and where you would go and where you wouldn't go? Did you do that? If you did, I'd like to hear that story after church because <laughs> I know that would be a good one. No, you didn't do that. You went in and you signed up. You enlisted. And what did enlisting mean? Enlisting mean that you were going to follow the orders of the Marines, the Army, Air Force, Navy, Coast Guard, whatever it is, wherever they were going to send you, whatever they were going to tell you to do, you're going to go do it. Isn't that right? If we can do that for the military, why can't we do it for God? Why, why can't we do it for God? 
Why can't we come down to an altar today and say, you know what, Lord, I'm enlisting. I'm enlisting in your service. I am foregoing all of my rights. I am foregoing all of my life. And I will follow you wherever you lead me, wherever you send me. And I'll speak to whoever you want me to speak to. And I'll open my mouth whenever you want me to open my mouth. I'm yours, God, to do with what you will. If we can do that for the United States military, but we're resistant to do that for God, is not that a bad state that we're in today? Is that not a bad state that we're in? But we can always, here's the thing, we can always reason among ourselves, can't we? Well, God, you know, I give this much to missions and, and I teach in the junior church. I'm, I'm chief in charge of crumb gobblers. Um, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And we can try to buy off God with our service and our giving without submitting and surrendering to God with our life. And then we can reason among ourselves that we can hold on to the vineyard. We can keep control of our vineyard of our life. We can keep God away from really having and doing what he would with us. We can do that. And we can reason among ourselves that we're doing this. It's kind of like bribery. I know, God, you want everything, but... Would you be happy if I just gave you this? Is this okay? Can we just do this? And, I, and I'll keep all this over here. And then we wonder why we're not seeing souls saved. We wonder why we're not seeing God work in our life. We wonder why that our relationship and our walk with God's grown cold. Amen? Amen. When we go to church, we put our suits on, we put our tie on, we do our service but we're really not interested in letting God have everything. We're really not interested in having this because you know what? We know what he's going to do. He's the heir. He's come. Let us kill him. That we might keep the inheritance to ourselves. You know, that's the spirit that the chief priest describes the Pharisees, the elders. That's the spirit and that's the motivation they had when Christ came to take Israel. They said, that's ours. You don't have a right to that. And they killed him. They killed him. Now we're in a little different time now as a saved person. We're not trying to kill Jesus. We're not, God, that relationship's not there. It's a relationship of love. We've, we've become his child. And he lovingly comes to us and says, if you'd only let me have your life. Yeah. I'd use it for something that is great. I'd use it to reach souls to Christ. You'd have an inheritance, a spiritual inheritance. But you can't have the stuff and a spiritual inheritance. No man can serve two masters, for either will hate the one and love the other, hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You know, God's calling every one of us today to come down to an altar and say, here I am, Lord. I love you more than my family. I love you more than my children. I love you more than my vineyard. I love you more than my stuff. I love you because you've loved me so much. When you think about what Christ did, he didn't have to do anything. Do you realize he could have pressed reset and started over with a whole new bunch of people? at any time, but he loved us so much he came down, he died on the cross. He knew they were going to, you know what? Somebody that's going to be killed and they don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how bad, you can, you can play games in your mind that it's going to be better than it actually is and that allows you to endure through it. He knew every pain and every bit of discomfort and every bit of shame before he went to the cross and he allowed him to strap him to a, to a post and be whipped and have his back torn to pieces. They allowed him to despise him, reject him, and put the crown of thorns on. We have African thorn trees. Those things have thorns that I'm not kidding you are this long. It wasn't some little blackberry thorn. Those things were long, hard, wooden thorns that tore his head and tore his skin. They beat him on top of that, drive those thorns into his head. He hauls his cross naked up there to the mountain and was shamed. And then they nailed him to the cross and he laid on that cross and suffered and died for you. 
don't take your vineyard and hold it back from him. Do you know why? Because he loves you. He's a merciful God. He's kind. He has nothing bad for you. He has only good for you. The greatest decision you could ever make tonight is come down to an altar and say, Lord, I'm all in. Maybe you say, I don't want to be all in. You need to come down to an altar and tell God, look, God, I don't want to be all in. Can you do that? Absolutely. He already knows what you're thinking. You might as well have a discussion with him. It's not like he's wondering what you're thinking. Amen? It's funny, kind of, isn't it? I think that's really funny. So as we look at this, they said he beheld them. And he said, what is it then? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. How did he become the head of the corner? The crucifixion. And then he says, whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken. Do you know that God's got a special plan for your life? Did you know that? You want to know what it is? He wants to kill you off. That's his special plan for your life. He wants to kill you off. He wants to crucify you so that he can live through you and you can live through him. But, we want to, but when we're holding on to this vineyard, do you know what we're doing? We're allowing our flesh to live uncrucified. And we're resisting being crucified with Christ. And then we want to have a relationship with him. But what basis can there be for a relationship if we have no fellowship of his sufferings? What's the basis of that fellowship? What are you going to do? Go talk to Jesus about NASCAR? He doesn't care. He cares about you. He just doesn't care about NASCAR. And we're so tied into this world over here that we, the last thing we want to do is surrender all, be crucified with him, and live with him, and have fellowship with his sufferings. That's why you won't talk to your relatives about whether they're saved or whether they're going to heaven. My grandfather died when I was a pastor in Washington State. I thank God that I'd preached the gospel to him. He never received it in my presence, but I heard later that he did, had. And I don't know whether that was a good profession or bad profession, but I'm, I'm going to tell you something. My, my Pentecostal pastor relatives, okay, they're, they, they are standing there. I'm not kidding you. He's on his deathbed. Something's broken inside. He's too weak to do surgery. And the doctor said, we can keep him on the machine till he dies or you can unplug it. We all got around. And we said, we got to unplug it. We got to let him go. My grandmother doesn't want to see him and remember him like that. I'm out there holding her hand, comforting her. And I walk back there and I watch my Pentecostal pastor friends, all my saved relatives. And I'm, I'm sure they're saved, okay? And they got his hand like this. He's completely unconscious. They're holding his hand. They're saying, Grandpa, Grandpa, if you're saved, if you know you're going to heaven, just squeeze our hand, Grandpa. Just squeeze our hand. It's too late. Do you understand that? It's too late. You can't lead him to Christ now. He's not even awake. And these things that we hold on to, these vineyard of our life that we hold on to, and the worrying about what everybody thinks and not caring about what Jesus thinks leads us to a point in time where one day you're going to bury your relatives and you'll have no idea whether they even know Christ or not because you are too afraid to tell them. My grandmother's 100 this year. I've talked to her about Christ. She's made a good profession of faith. I know she's going to heaven. I've gone all the way from the, New, the Old Testament to the New Testament. She asked me one day about the sacrifices. Why did they sacrifice those animals? Do you know why she asked me? Because I was the only one that told her anything about Christ. Do you know what? My family has missed out on those conversations, those spiritual conversations with their grandmother because they, never, they were afraid to talk to them. Look, you've got family members out there right now. You know that they're out there. And you know that you've never talked to them about Christ. Am I right? Hardest thing you'll ever do. You won't do it because you're too worried about what people think. The vineyard hasn't been surrendered to Christ. Does this make sense? 
This, this is not just some, and I'm telling you this, this is why I'm telling you this. This is not some spiritual exercise like a Buddhist monk does in some monastery up in the mountain that doesn't really have any effect on what happens in the world. Whether or not we surrender our lives to Christ and we say, I will go, I will do, I will speak, I'm yours, has a material impact on whether or not the people in our city, the people in our families, the people in our country, and the people in the world hear the gospel and go to heaven. It does. So as we end tonight, realize this, that you know, he's speaking of salvation there, that you'll fall on Christ and be broken, or the rock will fall on you and crush you into powder. But there is certainly an application to the Christian. And that is that we need to be broken before God, or one day we're going to regret it. We have but one life to live. We have but one life to live. And the years go by frighteningly fast. Make every day and every moment and every, make it count. Tell somebody about Christ. Come down to an altar. Give your life to Christ. Be willing to say, I'll go wherever you went. I've had people tell me, well, you know, Brother Ray, it's good you can go to Zambia. I couldn't go to Zambia. I'm a diabetic. I'm an insulin-dependent diabetic. Can you go to, how can you live in Zambia and be an insulin-dependent diabetic? You can jab a needle in your gut in America or you can jab a needle in your gut in Zambia. It doesn't make any difference. Quit making excuses. Quit reasoning among yourselves that you can't do something. Quit believing people that you can't be a missionary or that you can't be a preacher or that you can't go take the gospel to the world. Stop listening to that. Surrender. And then here's the best part. You don't have to wait till you're called. You've already been sent. You can say, here am I, Lord. Send me. I'll go. I think sometimes we take this call of God and we make it into some mystical experience you have to have, when in reality it's just obeying the Scripture. Do you understand that God said go? And that when Paul said, I'm going to go to Bithynia, do you know what the Spirit of God said? No, you're not. No. Well, I'm going to go to Troas. No, you're not. Sorry. And then he heard the Macedonian call and went there. Paul was trying to go places. He was trying to take the gospel here and there and here. And the Spirit of God just directed him and guided him. And, and can you imagine if Paul would have sat in Troas or sat, sat in Jerusalem or Antioch and said, well, you know, God's not called me. Could you imagine that? We've got to take this seriously. We're at a dire state in our nation. And there is no hope in the Republican Party and there is no hope in the Democrats. There is only hope in the gospel. And nobody's going to take it to people but you. Won't you come down to the altar tonight and say, Here, my Lord, send me.